1: Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Gerard. My pronouns are he him, and today I am here with Dr. Merrick Pilling, author of Queer and Trans Madness: Struggles for Social Justice. Queer and Trans Madness urges those invested in social justice for 2S LGBTQ people to interrogate the biomedical model of mental illness beyond the diagnoses that specifically target gender and sexual dissidents. In this first comprehensive application of mad studies to queer and trans experiences of mental distress, Pilling advances a broad critique of the biomedical model of mental illness as it pertains to to LGBTQ people. This book includes analyses of inpatient chart documentation from a psychiatric hospital and interviews with those who have experienced distress. Using an intersectional lens, Pilling critically examines and what constitutes mental health treatment and the impacts of medical strategies on mad queer and trans people. Ultimately, Queer and Trans Madness Struggles for Social Justice explores the emancipatory promise of queer and trans madness, advocating for more resources to respond to crises and distress in ways that are non-coercive, non-carceral and honor autonomy, as well as interdependence within 2s LGBTQ communities so thank you so much for being with me today dr pilling i wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying just a few words about yourself and your work
0: yeah thanks for having me uh, so i'm currently a faculty member in the women's and gender studies program at the university of windsor i did a postdoc at um the Dalhousie school of public health in social and behavioral health sciences at the university of toronto And my PhD is in Gender, Feminist, and Women's Studies from York University. My Master's was in Social Justice and Equity Studies, and my undergraduate was in Conflict Resolution Studies and Women's and Gender Studies. So truly an interdisciplinary scholar.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So um, just to start off, I first wanted to say I really enjoyed your book and found your work very compelling. So to dive right in, this first question I wanted to ask, about how the book started, where the origins were, in two different ways. First, I'll just ask you, how did this book come about for
0: you personally? Yeah, so this book came about for me in two intersecting ways. So through a mixture of both personal experience and academia. So I'll start with the personal experience aspect. Uh, so when I was a teenager, there was really very little representation of queerness and transness anywhere. So one of the ways that I found community was to sneak into the local gay bar uh, with a few other high school friends. One of those friends' mothers found out that she was doing this and sent her to a psychiatrist. And she was diagnosed with gender de- gender identity disorder. And this is a cisgender, meaning not trans teenage girl that i'm referring to so at the time it struck me as being very scary and messed up that she could be declared disordered and in need of treatment based on her attraction to other girls and though i didn't have the words to describe it it was an early experience of seeing how psychiatry can be weaponized against queer people and, in fact, how anti-queerness is built into these frameworks in fundamental ways. Later on, as an adult, I would read Eve Sedgwick's piece called How to Bring Your Kids Up Gay, where she points out that the first diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders to not have homosexuality in it is also the first DSM to have gender identity disorder in it. So she argues that gender identity disorder is always about disciplining queer sexuality as well as gender. Those two things are really always intertwined. And that would really make sense to me because I'd already seen this happen with my own eyes. You know, and as an aside for those who don't know, the language in the current DSM has been changed from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. So that's one piece of personal experience that started me down this path. The other one that I will mention is that in my first year of doctoral studies, my cousin died by suicide. So the way that her struggles and her death were framed, it really didn't sit well with me. All the usual things that get said, things like, you know, there's something wrong with the individual, faulty brain chemistry, et cetera. But again, I hadn't yet encountered any other way of understanding distress. I was introduced to MAD studies shortly thereafter through a graduate course called Mad People's History, taught by Dr. Jeffrey Rayom at York University. I was really excited by Mad Studies because it spoke to some of my own lived experiences in ways that mainstream thinking about mental health and illness really did not. So Mad Studies gave me the tools and the framework to counter this individualized deficit model that says there is something wrong with you biologically as an individual, and that's why you are distressed, and instead looks at structural violence and oppression and the way that causes distress, and it also looks at the violence of the psychiatric institution itself and the ways that that causes distress. So I had a completely different doctoral dissertation in mind, but I threw that idea out and I started working on some of these intersections between the pathologizing of queer and trans people and resistance to that and MAD studies as a way of understanding and responding to distress. So this book is partially based on that doctoral work and then partly based on a study that was completed post PhD with Dr. Andrea Daly that looked at psychiatric charts through a mad studies lens.
1: Great, well, thank you for going over that. I really appreciate you being willing to share even those more personal stories. It's very impactful to hear about how these issues take place and occur in everyday life in ways we often don't recognize. So the second part of this question I wanted to ask is, How did this book come about from the various disciplines of say, mad studies, queer studies, disability studies, even psychology? Um, What might be the gaps that this book fills in in different regards to research, methodology, theory, or even activism?
0: Um, So the beauty of being an an interdisciplinary scholar is really that you can draw from anywhere and you receive quite a broad training in in terms of, you know, across a number of disciplines. Um, And when I first encountered MAD studies, I didn't see as much there in terms of the representation of racialized voices and analyses of structural racism. And I didn't see much if any representation of queerness and transness. And yet I knew that there was so much resistance in queer and trans communities the pathologization of queerness and transness but yet i didn't see anything that kind of brought that into conversation with mad studies and i think it's important to put these two into conversation because using a mad studies framework can shed some light on the issues with the way gay and lesbian as well as queer and trans activists the ways that they have resisted psychiatry and resisted pathologization So important work has been accomplished through queer and trans resistance. And then at the same time, there's been some problematic distancing that happens. So this idea that we trans and queer people, we're not mentally ill. And then that's the hook that we're going to hang our activist strategy on. And so some of the problems are that sanism is really embedded in that position. It's also quite narrow because it focuses in on specific diagnoses. So historically, that was the diagnosis of homosexuality and gender identity disorder. Currently, that would be the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. We have to ask, though, what about the rest of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders? What about the biomedical model of mental illness as a whole? So this is where using a MAD studies lens it's really helpful because it points to the violence of the biomedical model and the psychiatric system and by this i mean at least a couple of things one is the ways that things like anti-blackness colonial hierarchies gender and sexual distance dissidents as perversion how these things are baked into the foundation of psychiatric knowledge production from the beginning and then two how current practice continues to perpetuate these things, and also specific carceral practices, things like mechanical restraints, chemical restraints, locked seclusion. So my book shows the ways in which queer and trans people are pathologized and psychiatrized beyond the diagnoses that specifically target us. And it shows why that's a problem and that we need MAD studies to help us broaden the critique to be about the biomedical model of mental illness as a whole and not just these specific diagnoses
1: thank you i really appreciate that and the thoughtfulness in which you use an intersectional lens in dealing with these various issues that are very obviously overlapping Um, so moving on to the next question one thing that i found curious was when i was researching the book and notice that on Amazon and Google Books, for example, Queer and Trans Madness is categorized as a psychology book. Was this purposeful?
0: So I don't know how these classifications happen. Um, It's not something that authors are consulted on. I assume that Amazon and Google Books don't have a Mad Studies category. Um, I don't know if they have a Disability Studies category. but I think people see anything to do with distress or so-called mental health, and they just kind of throw that into the category of psychology and psychiatry. And this speaks to how dominant the side disciplines are. Psychology and psychiatry are the prevailing frameworks for making sense of distress. And of course, you know, I'd like to see a wider recognition of MAD studies, while also somehow keeping it from becoming (laughs) co-opted. But at the same time, maybe it's okay that the book is categorized as psychology on some of these forums. I do want people who are invested in the side disciplines to read the book and hopefully start to ask some critical questions. Even for people who are really invested in the side disciplines, I think on some level, a lot of people feel that there are profound problems with mental health systems and the way that we understand and respond to distress, especially people who have experienced the system or who have loved ones who have or who work in the system even. But a lot of people just have not come across any other way of thinking about it and so don't have as many tools for thinking and doing differently.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I appreciate that. I'm hopeful that this book can be a little subversive, being encompassed within the psychology book genre. Um, So talking about the content of your book, to provide a foundation for this discussion, can you share your critique of the terms mental health and mental illness and your use of distress instead?
0: Yeah, so, um, you know, language is really important. All of these terms Have various ideologies underpinning them. So, when we use any of these terms, we are mobilizing those ideologies. So, the phrases mental health and mental illness position certain experiences and ways of being within the purview of medicine. Of course, there are people who self identify as mentally ill, but it is also often imposed on people when they're engaging in behaviors that are displeasing to others or socially disruptive in some way. The term distress is perhaps more of a descriptive term, whereas the term madness accomplishes a few different things. It's a term that has been politicized, so it's been reclaimed as an identity category. It signals to the reader that this book is not located within a medical framework. Rather, it's located within disability studies and MAD studies. The term term madness also acknowledges that in the grand scheme of things, it's only relatively recently that these experiences have been understood through a medical lens. Also, madness isn't always about distress, so it can be a broader term in that sense as well. I do use the term mental health in some contexts sort of as a shorthand way of acknowledging how the study participants were positioned in their everyday lives. I try to be very selective about when and where I use it because language is a big part of making this shift away from medicalization. I do want to be clear that I respect the ways that people self-identify. So when it comes to describing the way that someone identifies, I use the language that they have chosen. So whether that be mad, mentally ill, psychiatric survivor, or some other term.
1: Yeah, I think your thoughtfulness when it comes to language really um, shined in this book. As I've read other mad studies books, it is I think yours was one that really stood out in using language and the thoughtfulness in which you used it really showed how differently it can be to engage with these issues and topics from a mad lens. So you also discuss how mainstream LGBTQ mental health research tries to demonstrate that homophobia and transphobia contribute to quote unquote mental illness. But you argue that we should go further and challenge pathologization in the first place. And you have alluded to some of that throughout your previous answers, but would you mind diving a little bit deeper into that?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, In the book, I explain the difference between what I refer to as mainstream LGBTQ mental health research, kind of for a lack of a better phrase and the difference between that and MAD studies approaches. So by mainstream LGBTQ mental health research, I'm referring to research that does take the social context of homophobia and transphobia into account. It does do that. And it's usually conducted by LGBTQ researchers or allied researchers. So for example, this type of research will argue that there is a higher prevalence of mental illness in LGBTQ populations because of the existence of homophobia and transphobia. So that's something that the research might argue. So on the surface, this looks good because you are acknowledging the social context of homophobia and transphobia. It's definitely an improvement on research that would argue that LGBTQ people are mentally ill because queerness and trans is a disorder in and of itself. So it's an improvement on that. It's an improvement on research that would argue that LGBTQ people have a higher prevalence of mental illness because of brain chemistry or some other biological factor and just reduce it to that. However, even though mainstream LGBTQ mental health research does take into account the existence of social factors, it really does not disturb this larger framing of distress or madness as mental illness. And in this way, it is a very different approach from mad studies. It's still very much wedded to a biomedical framing of the issues. And I think partially because of that, it often also doesn't question what constitutes treatment or the carceral nature of the psychiatric system. Nice.
1: So um, kind of a centerpiece throughout this book, you employ this concept of a mad queer trans lens. Um, This is one of your main interventions throughout the various research studies that you discussed throughout the book. Would you mind going over what the utility of this mad queer trans
0: lens is? So I use the phrase mad queer and trans lens as a way to describe this bringing together of analyses from mad studies and mad activism, as well as queer studies, trans studies, and activism, as well as these kind of intersectional analyses of structural racism, colonialism, sanism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, all these other forms of oppression within the biomedical model of mental illness. So it's really meant to be a flexible concept that can pivot and focus in on various aspects of queerness and transness as necessary. So a mad queer and trans lens can draw attention to the intersections of these multiple but mutually constitutive systems of disempowerment and exploitation. So it really can allow for this broader analysis that takes into account insights from MAD studies that point to harms created by the Psi complex and does not abandon those who are both MAD and trans or queer. So just for example, even if all transgender related diagnoses were removed from the DSM, even if informed consent models were fully implemented, all transition related procedures were fully funded without medical gatekeeping, the psychiatrizing of trans people and gender nonconformity would persist in other forms, it's present in other forms. So as I discuss in more detail, in the book, in chapter five, where I talk about the charts, trans and non binary people are positioned as abject, as bizarre, and as pathological, especially trans feminine, non binary, and Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So, this narrow focus on the depathologization of trans identities in the DSM is not the answer to these issues. So a mad, queer, and trans lens is necessary in order to both understand and then address these kinds of problems.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate your work exploring this necessity. This mad, queer, and trans lens framework is really flexible in how you use it. And I especially appreciate how flexible it can be when not just considering homophobia or transphobia, but also taking into account the mutually constitutive ways, like you said, um, racism and homophobia and white supremacy and even citizenship and other experiences can be um, conflated in these issues. So thank you for contributing that. That was very insightful to read and think upon. Um, As you mentioned your fifth chapter, one thing that stood out to me was this work you do in your fifth chapter where you discuss analyzing practitioners and psychiatric service providers' patient notes. Um, This was a really unique approach from what I have read others um, studying this intersection. And I wanted to see if you could speak about what that was like as a method and what stood out about the information recorded in these patient notes and also um, what was absent from the notes, especially when relating to queer and trans patients?
0: So, yeah, the 16 charts of trans and non binary people that I analyze in this book, this is a subset of a larger data set of 161 charts from a study conducted with Dr. Andrea Daly. So, Andrea and I co-edited a book about the results of that study called Interrogating Psychiatric Narratives of Distress, Documented Lives. So the same pseudonyms are used across both books to allow for some cohesion and analysis across both books as well. Um, And I would say that using patient notes as data is interesting because it allows us to flip the gaze onto the practitioners and the workings of the psychiatric institution. Many studies focus on analyses of the narratives of people with lived experience, which my book also does do. But the data from this second study that looks at psych charts, it's valuable because it provides insight into these power dynamics by looking at what mental health care providers are documenting, how they are documenting, and thereby, Exposing the ideologies that underpin these notes, which are usually seen as quote unquote objective, right? I have to say that engaging with this data is also emotionally crushing in a lot of ways. I bet. When you're conducting, yeah, when you're conducting interviews with people, the person is in front of you, you can see them as a multifaceted human being. But when you're extracting and analyzing charts, you have these one dimensional documents that are often quite disturbing and dehumanizing. I found it particularly hard to focus in on the charts of trans and non-binary people because the blatant lack of understanding and care, as well as the overt and covert transphobia and homophobia was absolutely overwhelming I probably could have written 200 pages on just those charts, but in the end, I boiled it down to some of the main issues. Some of those issues are what I refer to as the basics, the issues that are all too common across so many contexts, even outside of the, of the psychiatric institution. So by that, I'm, I'm referring to things like misgendering through inc- incorrect pronoun use, public dead naming on psychiatric wards. All of this is very dehumanizing. It's obviously unacceptable. But I also want to emphasize that there were more insidious harms. For example, the cis-normative and trans-misogynist descriptions of of the patient's gendered appearance and their mannerisms, as well as the individualizing and pathologizing of trans and non-binary experiences of marginalization and violence. And I want to give you just a brief example of what I mean by that, of what I mean by the individualizing and pathologizing of experiences of marginalization. So this is not an example that's in the book, but in one of the charts, a practitioner described a woman who'd been living on the street and in the shelter system who was refusing to give up her bag. She was taking it with her everywhere, including to bed. And this was described by the practitioner as evidence of a paranoid delusion. Whereas you could understand this behavior in the context of this woman's life experience, where she might have reasonably felt the need to protect the only belongings that she had in the context of living on the street and in shelters. So this same kind of lack of understanding was shown about transphobic violence. The charts revealed a lack of understanding of the existence, let alone the impact of transphobic violence, especially the compounded violence experienced by black indigenous people of color and people who are living in poverty. So for example, in the book, I look at the charts of an indigenous trans woman and a black trans woman both who experienced repeated home invasions and street harassment. They also struggled with unemployment, suicidality, substance use, and poverty. These are essentially the compounded quote unquote, symptoms of structural inequities and interlocking systems of power and domination, such as settler colonialism, anti-Black racism, white supremacy, trans But within the psychiatric institution, These issues were characterized as individual deficits signaling psychosis. And the solution was antipsychotic medication. So this is why I think a MAD queer and trans lens is important so that it incorporates these insights from MAD studies about psychiatric harms more broadly and then how this applies to trans non-binary and queer people specifically. And I don't just mean this on a theoretical level. I really want more people to understand that sometimes what gets called treatment is actually a guise for violence and that as queer and trans people, it is not enough to just advocate for more mental health treatment. We actually need to change what constitutes treatment. And I think that this is a perspective that gets readily dismissed. I hope that if people read that chapter of Queer and Trans Madness or if they read interrogating psychiatric narratives of madness, that it might at least raise some questions. Um, you know, And in saying these things, I always feel like I should make a bit of a disclaimer to acknowledge that yes, there are people who find the psych system helpful. This does not negate the fact that there are major issues with it. We can critique a system while acknowledging that some people like it. Usually people with some level of privilege that protects them in some way, although not always.
1: Yeah, that's really good. Um, You mentioned some really poignant examples of how this can just disrupt people's entire lives. And especially thinking about psychiatrists and service providers, how their word can often be taken as objective and final, where any contestation from the service consumer or receiver just further perpetuates this idea of them being ill or quote unquote crazy. And I can't imagine what it was like to read all of those charts. I feel like I probably would have thrown them against the wall in rage, but I really appreciate your work um, doing that and really challenging us to question what constitutes treatment, especially when the treatment and the structure of care that we currently have is based on white supremacy and anti-black racism and settler colonialism, as well as homophobia and transphobia and all these ways that you have described that can really be harmful for people, which is devastating because a lot of times it's projected as these pla- these are places that you go to To receive care, not go to to be further traumatized. So I appreciate your work elucidating those different experiences and issues. Um, Now sort of wrapping up, maybe I should give a little spoiler alert, but I appreciated your notes towards the end where you talk about how this isn't just a scholarly engagement, but these can be translated into practical interventions and you name various people and organizations that um, employ mad queer and trans lenses in different ways to engage with this um, psi industrial complex basically one of which was project let's which i love them and their work Um, but would you mind expanding on that and talking to us about why you found it important to incorporate how your research can be applied into the real world and inform advocacy.
0: Yeah, I think that as with any oppressive system, there's always a widespread belief that this is just the way things are and that things are never gonna change. Um, And that belief really supports the status quo In the final chapter, I feature some of the narratives of the participants who talked about what could be called mutual aid and collective care, as well as some people and organizations who are doing things differently, like Project Letts, like you mentioned. Um, Mutual aid has recently received more mainstream attention, but these practices have deep roots in BIPOC communities and in queer and trans communities. There there have always been practices that are about taking care of one another within communities that have been treated as disposable and who have not been able to rely on the state. It's really easy to feel this sense of helplessness, desperation and overwhelm when you experience or you hear about structural violence. So it's important to recognize that there are already people who are doing this work And that change is possible change is already happening and there are multiple avenues toward change i think knowing about what is already being done can inspire us to contribute to change rather than resigning ourselves to the way that things are
1: yes it was really exciting to read about some of the work that is underway and realizing that this is happening in the present and not just in history because a lot of times activism and these kinds of interventions are relegated into the realm of history and not necessarily in the present, so I appreciate you um, intercepting that. So the last question I want to ask, or second to last question, I guess, is what are exciting things that you're working on now?
0: Well, I am teaching a lot, so that occupies a lot of my time. It definitely um, does. I, <laughs> yeah, I do have a chapter coming out hopefully soon, we'll see. Um, that extends some of the analysis of this book um, by focusing in on mad trans liberation. In the future, I'd like to make further connections with people who are interested in doing similar kinds of work to create collaborative projects on challenging coercion carcerality. Um, in mental health systems while also foregrounding queer, trans, and anti-racist perspectives. Yeah,
1: that's awesome. I am super excited to see what comes out of that work and um, love being able to hear about it and learn from you and others that are doing that kind of advocacy and activism. So um, I've taken up a lot of your time today, so thank you for being willing to meet with me and discuss this important work. Um, Just to wrap up, would you be willing to tell people where they can purchase your book and find other work that you've done?
0: Um, Yeah, for sure. So one thing I wanted to mention about that is the price of the book, which is hideously high. Um, I want people to know that um, a larger problem within academic publishing and that authors don't have control over that um i was disappointed to see it it's not what i wanted for the book in terms of making it quite inaccessible it's really only accessible to you if you have you know access to university libraries and that kind of thing Um, i do want people to know that i don't personally profit from sales of the book either Um, and one thing that people can do is request their public library Um, so not an institutional library but a public library in their area to carry the book and that makes it kind of marginally more accessible to more people.
1: Um,
0: Yeah so that is those are my comments about the price of the book and and that I'm that I'm disappointed that it is it it has been made quite inaccessible to folks.
1: Nice well I guess our homework is to request it at our public libraries and local libraries so that we can find it on a library shelf. Um, yeah, I'll just echo once again, thank you so much for your work and for spending time with me to talk about your book today. It's really appreciated the interventions that you're making and the ways that you're making it, not only theoretically and with we- research, but making it um, publicly available in ways that can impact people's lives. So. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me.